The prison guard walked with his prisoner down the corridor. The guard had done this many times with other prisoners, but tonight felt different. It felt as if the ghosts of the past were walking with him, watching his every move, telling him that what he was doing was a horrible mistake. The empty cells seemed to stare at them with the eyes of every man who had once been caged inside. But how many of them were innocent? How many had actually been guilty? This question haunted the prison guard as his steps matched those of the man who would be dead in less than 15 minutes. But there was something else that made tonight feel different from all the others. The prisoner next to him did not have an ounce of fear on his face. Though he was marching to his death, he appeared to welcome it with open arms. This made sense to the guard. He knew this man. He had seen what he could do. And every step closer to the electric chair made it harder for the guard to send this man to his death. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the course of this season, we'll explore the lives of five men who each exemplified a crucial virtue of life with not just their words, but their actions. From these men, we hope you will learn that a life of virtue is something you can achieve, no matter the obstacle. Welcome to Episode 4. The Goodness of John Coffey, hosted by Scott Einig. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is goodness. While goodness can be manifest in many different ways, it is a virtue that is best seen as a lifestyle cultivated by doing deeds that benefit others. It could be as simple as helping someone lift a heavy object, or as momentous as paying someone else's bills. Sometimes goodness requires us to give 15 minutes of our time. Other times it asks us to surrender all of our comfort with no end in sight. Whether small or enormous, goodness is always aware of what the situation requires and understands that the greatest purpose is to be available. Goodness says, I am here, let me serve. One such example of goodness is John Coffey, one of the primary characters from Stephen King's 1996 serial novel, The Green Mile. Though much of his life is a mystery, we come to see how goodness defines everything he does throughout the story, and how his example changes those around him forever. For those who have not read The Green Mile, or seen the 1999 film adaptation, be aware that this episode contains heavy spoilers. Nineteen thirty two, the Deep South, Cold Mountain State Penitentiary. Come on, men, put your backs into it. Uh, 
The armored truck that was carrying the prison's newest arrival pulled into the driveway next to the large steel doors that led into E-Block. This was the one place in the prison that the other prisoners whispered and joked about the most, if only to push aside their own dread. In other prisons, it was known as Death Row, or the Last Mile, but here at Cold Mountain, it was known by another name, the Green Mile. It had received this name because of the tired old lime color of the floor's well-worn linoleum, but the gentleness of its color did nothing to lessen the fear of those who had the misfortune to be locked inside one of the six cells. They could never escape the reality that they were on E-Block for the sole purpose of waiting to die. Men had come and gone. Most of them had done things so horrible that the guards couldn't bear to tell their own family members. This had certainly been the case with Paul Edgecombe, E-Block's head guard and superintendent. He had seen and heard almost everything in his numerous years on the Green Mile. More than was good for him. He stood resolute as he waited for the prisoner who had just pulled into the driveway. He had received so many in his time that he knew exactly what the new arrival would be doing when he was led inside. Today's new arrival was likely going to be doing one of three things. Crying, joking, or quietly contemplating. But Paul stopped thinking this when he saw his new prisoner for the first time. The gigantic black man in the jean overalls and bare feet was larger than any man Paul had ever seen. He looked as if he could have torn the block apart with his bare hands if he wanted to escape, but it was the expression on his face that struck Paul harder than the man's pure size. He looked as if he wasn't sure where he was or what he was doing here, as if he needed to be reminded that he had been sentenced to die for a heinous crime. He almost looked afraid, like a child who has just discovered he is all alone in a dark room. There were numerous scars along his bare arms and ankles. From the look of them, they had been there for a long time, maybe since childhood. This didn't seem to matter to Percy Wetmore, the guard who had pulled into the driveway with his new charge in tow. He was pulling on his sleeve to get him to move faster and hollering, Dead man walking! in a failed attempt to make himself sound intimidating. He was the most disliked guard in the whole prison for reasons Paul knew about personally. He had lost count of how many times he had tried to coach Percy on proper behavior or witnessed him breaking the rules. Percy hated the prisoners unless he could use them for two things, his own brand of sadistic amusement and to validate his own egotistical sense of dominance. This had certainly been the case with E-Block's only other prisoner, the Cajun murderer Edouard Delacroix, known as Del by the guards. 
Dell and his pet mouse, Mr. Jingles, just stared at their new blockmate as the chains dragged on the green floor, like Marley's ghost coming to give a warning. Percy was dragging the man toward his cell as if he believed he could have actually stopped him from raising hell if he wanted to. But Paul knew the truth about Percy. He was a coward at heart. This yellow streak showed every time he hid behind his political connections when he got himself into a mess. Percy was the governor's nephew by marriage, and this relation had, unfortunately, proven to be all too useful in keeping him from receiving the reprimands he deserved. The three other guards under Paul's command felt the same way about Percy. Brutus Howell, Harry Terwilliger, and Dean Stanton were unlike Percy in that they were good men who performed their duties well. Though they had seen everything Paul had seen in their years as guards, they also seemed disarmed by the giant before them. Paul asked the man his name. John Coffee, Like the drink. Only not spelled the same. At least he knows his name, Paul thought. He gave Coffee the speech he had given to hundreds of other prisoners new to the Green Mile. What the rules were, what to expect, reminding him that they were not there to serve him, and so on and so forth. As the guards left to process Coffee's paperwork, Coffee leaned through the bars and said something that would haunt Paul like a nightmare in the months to come. I couldn't help it, boss. I tried to take it back, but it was too late. Paul was up late that night, smoking home-rolled bugler and listening to the radio. He couldn't stop thinking about his new inmate and what he had done. It had all been there in the paperwork. The Dederick family, Klaus, his wife Marjorie, and their three children, Howie, Cora, and Kathy, had been up early to get the farm chores done. Howie called for Klaus, yelling that there was blood on the porch. The girls had been sleeping out there the night before and were nowhere in sight. Klaus Dederick quickly gathered a small posse armed with guns to help find his daughters. As they approached the river, the men had been stopped by a loud wailing sound. As they approached with caution, they saw on the riverbank a sight that many that day would pray they would never remember. John Coffey was there with the two girls cradled in his massive arms like oversized dolls. They were dead, naked, and covered in blood. Coffee held them and continued wailing out the worst grief any of the posse members had ever heard. Klaus bolted toward him and began raining kicks and blows on the huge man, and was pulled off by the others before collapsing into tears. Coffee continued crying as if he hadn't felt the assault. He then told the posse the same thing that he told Paul later. I couldn't help it. I tried to take it back, but it was too late. He was arrested for rape and murder shortly after, and now here he was, in a small cell in Cold Mountain awaiting execution by the prison's most notorious resident, Old Sparky, the electric chair. Paul was too troubled for sleep. It was going to be a long night. A few weeks passed. Today was yet another day for a new arrival to E-Block, and Paul was feeling more sick than he had felt in years. He had been diagnosed a while back with a urinary infection that had steadily grown worse. The night before, the pain was so awful that Paul was tempted to call out sick today, but he didn't feel right about not being there to oversee a new addition to his flock. 
he planned to stop by the warden's office to get sick leave for tomorrow. Hal Moores was the best warden Paul had served under, and he knew getting sick leave would be easy. When he approached the door, it swung open to reveal Hal quietly sobbing in his chair. Hal told him to shut the door for privacy. He told Paul the news. His wife Melinda had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was too deep in her head for the doctors to operate, and by Christmas, she was expected to die. Paul held him as he continued to cry, deciding that now was not a good time to make his request. He believed he could make it through the day, despite his pain, and get their new arrival checked in with no problem. Percy, Dean, and Harry began leading the new prisoner inside. His name was William Wharton, a scrawny young kid who looked as if he had fallen from an ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. His long greasy hair swayed as it uncovered the tattoo of Billy the Kid on his shoulder. He had a case of halitosis that could have peeled paint, and his teeth indicated a lifetime of avoiding visits to the dentist. His blank face, unhinged jaw, and dangling drool told the guards that he had been doped from a recent medical inspection. He was silent and blank the entire ride over, no more dangerous than a dead animal. But the moment they stepped on the Green Mile, he let out a rebel cry and began attacking the guards. He elbowed Harry in the face and began strangling Dean Stanton, climbing on his back and whooping as the other guards tried to get him off. They yelled to Percy to hit him with his billy club, but Percy only stood there, wide-eyed and far too scared to act. Paul ran over with his gun raised, knowing he might miss and kill his friend if Wharton didn't stop flailing. His crazed blue eyes peeked from behind Dean's shoulder, daring Paul to shoot. Suddenly, as if by a miracle, the door swung open to reveal Brutus Howell. Acting without a moment's hesitation, he ran over and knocked Wharton unconscious with his own billy club. That was a good one, boss. <sighs> Dean knelt and hacked air into his lungs. Percy stood in frozen shock. Harry hobbled over, holding his hurting face. Paul holstered his gun, panting, wincing, and gasping. Wharton was dragged into his cell, and Dean was carried off to the infirmary. The sudden explosion of activity had made the pain in Paul's groin unbearable. When everyone was gone, he suddenly heard a voice. Boss, I need to see you. Paul looked around and saw that it had come from Coffee's cell. Given the state he was in, this was the worst possible time to go toward a prisoner. But something about Coffee, his very presence, drew Paul toward his cell. It seemed as if he were being hypnotized. Still feeling horribly ill, Paul asked Coffee what he wanted. Coffee said, Just to help. He suddenly placed his large hand between Paul's groin and navel. Before Paul could react, he felt a large, painless jolt go through his body. It was as if he had just been electrocuted. He twitched and writhed. Then, as soon as it had begun, it was over. Paul looked at Coffee as if he were seeing a supernatural being. Coffee suddenly began coughing violently, and from his mouth came a giant cloud of what appeared to be insects. 
They buzzed around his head in a thick cloud, turned white, and disappeared like smoke. Paul almost fell to his knees. He had heard old wives' tales about such supernatural happenings, but until now did not believe in any of them. Paul asked him what he had done. I helped it, didn't I? Coffey said. Paul could only nod. He had cured him. He was better. It was real. Coffey smiled weakly and lay back on his cot, looking and sounding exhausted. Paul walked over to his desk and sat down. Many emotions were running through him, but two feelings were at the forefront of his thoughts. Relief from the agonizing pain in his groin, and an overwhelming curiosity about John Coffey. The only courses of action Paul could settle on were two things. He would make love to his wife for the first time in months, and would try to find out more about who John Coffey really was, and maybe discover if he was actually guilty. Prison time is slow time, but like all things, eventually it passes on. Things had remained mostly the same since Paul's healing, which he was careful not to discuss with anyone. Wharton had needed to be straitjacketed and locked in the small padded room a few times. He seemed to think that the guards had never known trouble before meeting him, and he was determined to make their lives miserable. Dell's execution was approaching, a fact that made Paul shiver. Normally, he or Dean, Harry, or Brutus was the one conducting the execution, but this time it would be Percy. Percy had a special hatred for Dell and his pet mouse, Mr. Jingles, and had time and again proven how horribly unfit he was to work in a place like Cold Mountain. Paul imagined everything going from bad to worse the moment the execution began, but he took comfort in knowing that Percy would be moving on soon to a job at Briar Ridge State Mental Facility. Percy had also performed unexpectedly well in the execution rehearsals, which helped ease Paul's concerns. It seemed things would go alright. They had just finished another successful rehearsal. Dean and Harry were giving Percy extra pieces of advice. Brutus had just escorted Dell back onto the Green Mile and was leading him back to his cell. When they got close to Percy, Percy jokingly made a gesture to frighten Dell. Dell slipped and fell. Brutus, huffing out a noise of contempt for Percy, reached down to help Dell up. Percy wandered over to the cell door to say that he was only joking, not realizing that he had gotten too close to William Wharton's cell. In the blink of an eye, Wharton jumped off his cot and grabbed Percy, holding him tight against the bars. Percy screamed like a person does when he realizes he is going to die. The other guards drew their nightsticks and yelled at Wharton to let him go. He did, and Percy darted across to the other side in sheer terror. The sound of cackling laughter suddenly sounded along the mile. It was Dell. He was laughing and pointing at Percy. Percy looked down and saw that he had wet himself. The dark patch on his crotch stood out like a birthmark for all to see. The guard said nothing. Percy blushed a red like no one had ever seen and turned away from the others his terror giving way to the worst humiliation imaginable. Dell kept laughing hysterically until Brutus told him to shut up. SHUT UP! 
Percy hissed to the guards that he would get them all fired if they said a word of this to anyone. They promised not to tell. Instead of threatening to kill Dell and his stupid little mouse, Percy walked away in silence. The next night had come, and it was now 24 hours before Dell's execution. Paul and Brutus were talking with Dell about where they would take Mr. Jingles after his execution. As Dell was thinking it over, he threw a spool against his cell wall, and Mr. Jingles would roll it back to him like a dog playing fetch. Everyone but Percy had become convinced over the months that the mouse had a genius-level intelligence for its species. Some of them privately thought that he might even be some bizarre form of guardian angel for Dell in his final hours. He kept playing the spool game until Dell bounced it out between the bars of his cell. It rolled toward the middle of the green mile, and Mr. Jingles ran after it with his usual enthusiasm. Paul and Brutus looked up in horror as they saw Percy rush over. Before they could shout, he raised one heavy black shoe into the air and brought it down on the mouse with all the force he could muster. There was a moment of terrible silence before Dell burst into agonized sobs and screams. Percy looked at him and grinned before slowly walking away, adjusting his shirt collar and whistling a tune. Dell continued his terrible cries before a voice broke through. Give him to me, while there's still time. Everyone looked around and saw a large outstretched hand reaching through the cell bars. John Coffey said it again with more urgency. They brought the dead mouse over and placed it in his hand. Paul didn't think Coffey could do anything to save Mr. Jingles. He had been cured of an infection. The mouse had been crushed to death beyond recognition. The guards stood there as Coffey cupped the mouse in his huge hands and began to breathe. Brutus gasped. The others stared with wide, awestruck eyes. The tail had begun twitching. Coffey suddenly pulled his face away as if he had just inhaled something awful. He began to cough and hack as he had when he had healed Paul. He then lifted his face toward the ceiling and exhaled an enormous cloud of those same bugs or insects. <laughs> After they turned white and vanished, they all heard a familiar squeaking sound. Mr. Jingle stepped out from between Coffee's fingers and ran over to Dell, completely restored as if nothing had happened. Dell sobbed and cried tears of joy as he held his friend. The guards were frozen like statues in utter disbelief. They all looked at Coffee. He appeared exhausted but strangely happy. He smiled at them, lay down, and rolled over to face the wall. The night of the execution had come. It was an unusually stormy night. The ominous sounds of thunder and lightning punctuated the night like prophets announcing an impending doom. The guards had made all of the preparations and were going toward Dell's cell. Percy was in the execution room ushering in the crowd of witnesses and directing them to their seats. He had managed once again to use his political connections to avoid trouble for what he had done to the mouse, but the guards had threatened to tell people that Percy had done nothing to prevent Wharton from nearly killing Dean upon his arrival. This had made Percy fearful, and he had promised to put in for a transfer to Briar Ridge the following day. 
But despite Paul's success in assuring that Percy would be gone soon, he was still leading tonight's execution. He tried not to think about it as he stood before Dell's cell with Harry, Dean, and Brutus. Dell handed Mr. Jingles to John Coffey and said a tearful goodbye to his friend. None of them knew that after this moment, none of them would ever see the mouse again. They all began to walk the green mile as the thunder and lightning boomed overhead. They entered the storage shed. Dell was strapped in. The witnesses waited. The guards stood in formation around the terrified prisoner sitting in Old Sparky. Percy spoke the traditional words given to those awaiting their death, and when this was done he began to strap on the cap that carried the current. He placed the sponge onto Dell's bald head and tightened the straps. Before tonight, Percy had been instructed on the importance of the sponge. It was dipped in brine and placed under the cap to better conduct the charge into the condemned person's head, thereby making the execution go faster. Paul had seen Percy put the sponge there, but something wasn't right. Paul could sense it. Something just wasn't right. Percy stood back with his hands behind him and said the last words before he would give the order. May God have mercy on your soul. The men waited for the clock to reach midnight. The thunder clashed. The witnesses jumped. Suddenly, Paul realized it. The sponge was dry. Percy had not soaked it in brine before placing it under the cap. But before he could shout, the clock struck midnight, and Percy gave the order. Roll on two! The current shot through Dell like the lightning outside the prison. At first it was the same as it always was, but suddenly things began to go wrong. Smoke began to pour out from under the black silk hood over Dell's face. He slammed back and forth in the chair in a violent way that Paul had never seen before. Harry, Dean, and Brutus looked on in bewilderment. The witnesses stirred uneasily. A horrible smell filled the room. Dell began to scream in a high-pitched, almost rat-like way as he flailed in the chair. Suddenly, the hood on his face burst into flames, and the witnesses began to jump up and head toward the door in a panic. Paul couldn't stop the execution while Dell was still alive. All he and the others could do was wait for it to be over. The horror finally ended a few minutes later when Dell's head slumped down on his chest. Percy only stared in pale-faced, slack-jawed horror. The guards checked to make sure there were no vital signs, loaded Dell's body on a gurney, and got him out of there. They somehow all managed not to vomit. Paul sat in the chair by the desk overlooking the Green Mile. The normally comforting buzz of the overhead bulbs only reminded him of the horror he had witnessed not an hour ago. The trustees had flung the doors open and had been cleaning puke off the floor ever since. The guards had all given Percy the verbal lashing of his life and had amazingly refrained from unholstering their billy clubs and knocking his teeth out. Paul made him confirm his promise to leave Cold Mountain for good and ordered him to help clean out the storage room. Paul got up and walked over to John Coffey's cell. He was seated on his cot and doing a curious thing. He was rubbing his calves. Paul asked if he was all right, but Coffey didn't respond. He appeared to be weeping. 
He looked up and uttered two words before laying down. Poor Dale. Paul just looked at him. Somehow, Coffee knew what had happened. He had been rubbing his calves as if he had been in pain. Then Paul remembered. The calves had wires from the chair attached to them during executions. He looked at Coffee in shock. Not only had he known, but he had felt whatever had happened to Dell. Paul walked back to the desk, thinking about what Coffee had told them when he first came on the mile. I couldn't help it. I tried to take it back, but it was too late. His mind went to the Dederick girls. Things were slowly beginning to come together to form a new theory. Before the night was over, he arranged for Dean, Harry, and Brutus to have lunch at his house. He had some things to tell them. The following day, the men sat on Paul's back porch and ate a delicious meal made by his wife, Janice. The eating stopped when the men asked Paul what he wanted to talk to them about. Paul began to recount the details of the crime John Coffey had been convicted of, and he told them what he had slowly become convinced of over the past few weeks. John Coffey was innocent. The men were surprised and asked him to elaborate. He told them of how John had cured him of his illness and saved the mouse from certain death, and of what he had said in both incidents. I helped it, didn't I? He reminded them of the words Coffey had said when he was captured. I tried to take it back, but it was too late. The posse had got it wrong. The judge and jury had got it wrong. They all thought John Coffey was confessing, but what he really meant was that he had tried to save the girls' lives and failed, which led to his horrible wailing sounds. Harry, Dean, and Brutus stared off pensively before nodding in agreement. They all had seen Coffey, seen the scars, the man's pure size. He looked like a man who could do such a thing, but nothing he had done since his arrival on the mile indicated that he was a murderer. He cured Paul. He saved the mouse. It just didn't add up. Then Paul told them the part of his plan that was truly insane. He wanted to take coffee to the warden's sick wife, Melinda. The men reminded Paul that they would likely be thrown in prison themselves if they were caught. But despite their fears, they all agreed to do it. They spent the rest of the day discussing how to carry out their insane mission. It had gone well so far. Earlier that night, the men had given Wild Bill Wharton a tin cup with soda pop, which he had drunk down eagerly. After releasing a satisfied belch, he began to sway and stagger. Paul grinned. The infirmary drugs were working. Moments later, the worthless Hellraiser with the face that suggested his parents used to feed him with a slingshot crashed onto the cot, dead to the world. They now had to deal with Percy. He was sitting in Paul's office reading a crude pornographic comic book. He quickly got to his feet and looked at them nervously. Brutus had the straitjacket in his hand. Percy's eyes widened and he bolted for the door, but they grabbed him and strapped him in like so many other prisoners in the past. After stuffing a cloth into his muzzle and taping his trap shut, they tossed him into the padded room, turned off the lights, and locked the door. Each of them smiled at one another, feeling the same level of satisfaction all at once. They went over to John's cell. He was sitting on his cot as if he were waiting for something. Paul asked him if he knew where they were going. He replied, 
to help a lady? The guards looked at one another in silent wonder. They had managed to break Hoffy out of the slam and get off the prison grounds undetected. It helped that this whole adventure was taking place under the cover of darkness. There was no moon, but plenty of stars. John Coffey was looking around. Paul noticed that he was no longer weeping silently as he usually did. He seemed alive and fully present. He looked around at the wonders of the night and smiled like someone seeing the world with virgin eyes. Paul could only look at him, knowing he would never fully understand this mysterious giant. It seemed that everything the man did confirmed his innocence. Paul tried to ignore the fact that, short of a miracle, he would likely die for the crime. But first he had to think about getting him to Melinda, and to not get thrown in prison if he failed. It was two in the morning. The guards pulled into the warden's driveway. Paul reminded his fellow men that this was their last chance to pull away before they were seen. Before they could reply, a light came on. It was too late. Warden Moores opened the door with the enormous barrel of his grandfather's Colt Buntline special raised aloft. The men tried to calm him down, telling him they were only there to help. Suddenly, Melinda's cries were heard from the upstairs bedroom. They were the cries of a woman who sounded on the verge of death. She began cussing and swearing in a way that Paul never could have imagined such a sweet woman doing. John Coffey suddenly got down from the back of Harry's old farm truck and slowly walked toward the warden. He told him to halt, but Coffey seemed not to have heard. The warden looked hypnotized, much as Paul had been when Coffey healed him. He plucked the gun from his strengthless hand and passed it to the guards. I came to help her, boss. That's all I want. Just to help. The warden told Coffey that no one could help his wife. Coffey smiled and began walking upstairs. The guards looked at one another and went inside, knowing that whatever was going to happen next was out of their hands. Melinda looked at him with her sick, nearly dead eyes. Her skin was pale and sagging on her thin frame. She lay on the bed as if she were already a cadaver in a morgue, or like a prisoner recently executed. Coffee kept smiling and got closer to the woman. She asked him his name. John Coffee, ma'am. Like to drink, only not spelled the same. You be still now. Just be so quiet and so still. He leaned over her and opened his mouth. The men looked on in amazed bewilderment. Coffey inhaled in the same slow way he had done before. Suddenly the room shook. The men gasped. John continued breathing. After what seemed like hours, he clenched his mouth shut sharply. He then went to the floor and began coughing. The men looked back up at Melinda. There was not a single sign of sickness on her face. She seemed ten years younger, and even her hair looked closer to the rich red color it had been in her youth. Warden Moores rushed over to her and began weeping tears of joy, holding his wife as if he would never let her go. Coffee kept coughing as if he would release the bugs like before, but he didn't. He only continued to cough. Paul was worried that he may have done too much, that he had taken Melinda's place on the edge of the grave. Coffee slowly got to his feet and went over to the woman. 
she looked up at him and said, I dreamed of you. We were wandering around in the dark. We found each other. She got up off the bed and gave him a hug. He held her and stroked the top of her head with infinite gentleness. The men managed to get John back onto the mile without being seen. He had coughed and hacked the entire time. Brutus told Paul that he feared he might die, but Paul just wanted him back in his cell. Once he was finally locked back up, Dean, who had been chosen to stay behind, asked them if it had been the miracle they all hoped it would be. They all nodded, too stunned for words. None of them had ever believed such things could happen in the world before tonight, that men like John Coffey could exist. Paul rallied the men and let Percy out of the restraint room. They told him that if he ever told about what they had done, they would see to it that people knew about the execution and how he almost got Dean killed. They told him they would leave him alone until he moved on to Briar Ridge, and Percy told them the matter was closed. After taking back his gun and baton, he slowly walked down the mile. What he didn't notice was that he had gotten too close to Coffee's cell. Coffee's long brown arm shot out from between the bars and grabbed Percy's shirt collar. The guards ran over and began yelling for Coffee to let him go. Percy's eyes widened in horror as Coffee opened his mouth and let out another long gagging sound. The guards drew back as they saw a long, flowing tide of bugs pouring out of Coffee and into Percy's mouth. <coughs> When it was over, Percy dropped his baton. His eyes were completely blank and devoid of life. The guards tried to snap him out of it, but he only stared. He suddenly began to walk slowly down the mile, as if being pulled by strings. He stopped in front of Wild Bill Wharton's cell. He was still passed out from the drugs and snoring loudly. Percy stood there for a moment longer then quickly drew his pistol and emptied the entire clip into the sleeping man. The guards yelled and ran toward Percy, knocking him off his feet and wrestling the gun out of his hands. Percy suddenly commenced coughing. He knelt over the green mile and hacked out an enormous cloud of black insects. They turned a dazzling white and disappeared like cigarette smoke. Percy continued his vacant, dead-eyed gaze as the men looked at the corpse of William Wharton. Paul went over to Coffee's cell, asking him why he had done it. Coffee told him that he had punished them both. Paul didn't understand why he had punished Wild Bill. Coffee reached out his hand, telling him that in order for Paul to know the truth, he had to give him a piece of himself. Paul reluctantly took Coffee's hand and gasped as he saw a vision. The Dederick girls were with their parents and brother out painting their barn. A traveler had come by asking for work and a place to stay. He seemed nice and good-natured, and Klaus Dederick hired him for a day's worth of chores. He ate dinner with them before being offered a bed of hay in the barn for the night. He accepted, looking at the girls in delight. When everyone was asleep, he went to the sleeping girls on the porch. He woke them and said not to make any noise, or he would kill them. 
The girls cried as he took them away. The last thing the girls saw was the man's tattoo of Billy the Kid on his shoulder. Coffee let go of Paul's hand, and Paul gasped. It had been Wild Bill. Wild Bill had killed them. His suspicions were true. Coffee was innocent. He would die for another man's crime, and it was too late to stop it. Coffee lay down on his cot to face the wall. Paul backed away, knowing he would not sleep that night. Maybe not for many more nights. The aftermath of the shooting lasted a few weeks. Percy had been admitted to Briar Ridge as a patient, where he would remain for the rest of his life. No one ever found out about the guard's night journey, and Wild Bill was hauled to the nearest cemetery. When the uproar finally died down, Paul was now faced with the reality that Coffee would walk the Green Mile tomorrow night. He wasn't sure he could do it. He wasn't sure he could send this innocent man to his death. He approached Coffee's cell and asked him what he wanted him to do. Coffee looked at him with a sense of peace that Paul had never seen before. There were no tears and no quiet sobs. Coffee told him that he wanted to go. He told Paul that he took on pain from everyone around him like a sponge takes on water. He was tired of wandering the earth, lonely as a robin in the rain. He could no longer stand people being ugly to each other. He could no longer live in a world filled with so much evil, with so many failed chances to help those in need. Knowing that he was willing was the only thing that could make Paul do his job. Though he knew he had to, he could never escape the reality that he was sending this gift of God to his death, sending this symbol of goodness out of a world that desperately needed it. Paul walked away in silence, feeling as if he were, for the first time in his life, truly in danger of hell. The following night came. The guards stood at Coffee's cell. Coffee placed a comforting hand on their shoulders, telling them not to worry, that he would be all right in a little while. Paul asked if he wanted to pray before they walked. He had asked this to many prisoners before, though not many had accepted the offer. Coffee said yes and got to his knees with Paul. He prayed a prayer that night that Paul had never heard before and would never hear again. Baby Jesus, meek and mild, pray for me, an orphan child. Be my strength. Be my friend. Be with me until the end. Amen. When he finished, Coffee stood up and helped Paul get to his feet. Coffee was strapped into Old Sparky. The small group of witnesses watched. All of them were glad to see this baby killer die tonight. Coffee could feel their hatred and did his best to remember that the guards didn't hate him. Paul said the traditional words in a voice that was on the verge of breaking into loud sobs. As he stood there, Coffee opened his palm. Paul leaned forward and took it, as he had when they first met. He gave Coffee a look that he hoped would say that he would see him real soon. He stood back, not able to give the final order. He just couldn't do it. Suddenly, a voice he barely recognized as his own said, Roll on two!
In a few moments, it was over. John Coffey was gone. His final tears shone on his cheek. When Paul got home that night, he got out of his car, and the greatest grief he had ever known brought him to his knees. His wife Janice came out and held him as he wept for what seemed like hours. Paul felt that his weeping was not just for him, but for all of them. All of those people Coffey had helped and changed for the better, and for those who would never know him. That winter, Harry and Dean requested to be placed in different areas of the prison. Paul and Brutus transferred away from death row to a boys' correctional facility away from Cold Mountain. All of them had come to the same conclusion without needing to say a word. They could no longer bear the thought of seeing another man die in the arms of old Sparky. Once they left, they never saw the chair again. John Coffey's execution was the last any of them would ever take part in. Paul went outside to breathe in the new morning air. Despite his advanced age, he still liked to come out here and take in the day. The garden at Georgia Pines Nursing Home was always a delightful place to walk. He might even see his friend Elaine walking about and go with her. He was arguably the most fit and healthy of everyone in this place. Paul was remembering why he was this way at over a hundred years old, when so many had passed on. As he was thinking, he stopped. Something was on the ground in front of him. It stared back at him for what seemed a lifetime before uttering a familiar squeak. It was him, Mr. Jingles. Paul gasped as the mouse touched the toe of his slipper. He had found him. Somehow, some way, the mouse had found him. Paul bent down and scooped Mr. Jingles into his hand. He just looked at him for a while watched him play around in his hand and squeak at his old blockmate. As he looked at him, Paul suddenly understood what he needed to do. Somehow, seeing the mouse there in his hand reminded him that time was running short. Whatever magic had been in John Coffey on that night in the fall of 1932 when he touched Paul, the magic that had prolonged his life after all his friends and loved ones had passed on, was not going to last forever. It was time. Time to get the story out. Time to tell others about this man he had known only briefly, but whose impact had changed him forever. Time to tell others of this man who had symbolized everything that was good and right in the world. Time to tell others to be like him. To be there. To be available. To be good. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Man on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore man and give us a follow. Tune in next week for episode 5, where we explore the sacrifice of David Eubank.